Just keep it out. If you've got your Bible app open, just make sure you go ahead and close out of uh, Twitter and Facebook while you're at it. Or I guess whatever, TikTok, Snapchat, I don't know, all the other stuff. Okay, we're going to do something a little, a little different this morning, a little strange. Dom's beating me to the punch. Can everybody please stand up? Everybody stand up. You're not too cool. Come on now. Everybody stand up. If Ms. Janice can stand up, you can stand up. Guys, Ms. Janice and Ms. Susan are back. Praise God. Yeah, we love you. All right, if you have been formally discipled, That is, someone who was a little bit further than you in their walk with Christ, even in just some particular ways. If someone who's further along, has been further along in their walk with Christ than you, said, hey, let's do discipleship, and then they formally discipled you. If that has been you, sit down. If you think that that's happened in some measure, not quite as formal as I just said, but you think an older Christian has definitely intentionally tried to help you follow Jesus better. Sit down. That should be everyone in the church. Charles, you can sit, buddy. I cannot tell you how often I ask Christians the question, have you been discipled? It's one of the first questions that I ask a Christian when I find out that they are a Christian and I'm trying to like build a new relationship with them. I've probably asked some variation of that question to every single person in this room at one point or another. And if I haven't, don't worry, I'll get around to it. Now, all too often, what I find out when I ask that question is that Christians have not been discipled. Sometimes I'm pleasantly surprised. I'll say, have you been discipled? And they'll go like, yeah, this person and that person. Like Luke Hill's an example of that. The first time we sat down, I said, Have you been discipled? And he said, yeah, this guy and that guy and this other guy, they poured into me. And I'm like, wow, praise God for that. And you can see the fruit of it in his life. But all too often I'll ask that question and the answer will be no. No one has ever intentionally tried to help me follow Jesus. More tragically is when I ask that question and the Christian that I'm talking to doesn't even understand what what it is that I'm asking them. I'll say, "Have, have you been discipled? And they'll say, well, what do you mean? I'll say, have you been discipled? And they'll say, what is, what is a disciple? This is, of course, an indictment against our churches that have become more enamored with ministry programs, which are nowhere found in Scripture, and less enthusiastic about basic Christian discipleship, which is a clear command from Jesus. We just read it in Matthew 28. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. These were the final marching orders of Jesus to his people. Yet our churches are bursting with programs and anemic in discipleship. Now, maybe you're here this morning, and as you hear me saying this, you're feeling a little sheepish. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, yeah, yeah, that's me. I've never been discipled. I don't really know what discipleship is. I've never discipled anyone. And if that's you, I want you to know, like, I've been right where you are. I've been the guy sitting in a Christian service, listening to a sermon or a lesson, 
Hearing someone talk about the kind of basics of the faith that I should have known about but didn't know about because no one taught me. If, if that's you this morning, I want you to know that that's not the end of the world, that you haven't been taught these things. It's definitely tragic. But you kind of can't help what you haven't been taught, right? You don't know what you don't know. Someone should have told you they didn't tell you, and that stinks. That's kind of out of your control. But what is in your control is your ability to pay attention now and for the rest of the sermon as we talk about what discipleship is and why it matters. You didn't know then, but from here on out, you will know. So the onus is on you. By God's grace, let's pay close attention. Join me in prayer, and then we'll dive in. Father, uh, we, we need your help. We're desperate, God. Our flesh is always present. The world is pressing in on us. Satan is scheming against us. We are all too often disinterested, apathetic. We're afraid to count the cost. We love this world and all the things that are in it. Our affections have grown cold for Christ. Father, your spirit this morning can help undo all of that. Your spirit can, can roll back these sinful desires, these terrible habits that we've built up. Your spirit can renew our affections this morning. So we pray that he would do that for our good and for the glory of your most holy name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to define our terms at a few different points throughout this morning's sermon. So first, let's talk about what it is to disciple. Discipling, simply put, is just to help others follow Jesus, right? Not super complicated. You're following Jesus, you're helping someone else to follow Jesus. This is Christianity 101. If you tell me that you are a follower of Jesus... And then say that you're not helping anyone else to follow Jesus. I don't know what you mean when you say that you follow Jesus. Because helping others to follow Jesus is a big part of what it means to follow Jesus. Are you guys tracking? <laughs> the Jesus counter in the corner. Ding, 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 ding. This morning's sermon is all about making disciples, but we shouldn't get ahead of ourselves. Because before we can make disciples, we actually must first be disciples ourselves. In order to help others follow Christ, we must first be Christ's followers. We must come to see ourselves as utterly sinful, lost, and hopeless in this world, in great need of the salvation that can only be found in Christ and Christ alone, accomplished by his finished work on the cross. If we are not first disciples of Jesus, our discipleship efforts with other people in the church will be nothing more than the blind leading the blind. Only those who can hear the voice of Jesus can help others listen to and obey his word. Only those who have been called out of the darkness can help other Christians learn what it means to walk in the light. Only those who have put off the flesh can help others put on the deeds of righteousness. Only those who have received the truth of Christ can lead others away from the lies of Satan and the errors of this world. Now let's back up a little bit more and, and, and do some more term defining. We're supposed to be disciples, but we're also supposed to make disciples. Well, what is a disciple? If, if we're supposed to be, if our obedience to Christ involves making disciples, well, what is it that we're making? Well, again, super simple answer here. Simply put, being a disciple is just being a student. 
Right? They're, I mean, they're basically synonymous with one slight caveat. Uh, when you think of, about being a student, you probably think about your own experience as a child in like the American school system, right? Eight, eight o'clock, you show up there, you know, you recess, lunch, recess. Did you guys have two recesses? And then you're out at three, you know. I want you to think less about being a student in terms of like the American school system and, and more about like a doctor going through a residency, right? Think less about uh, an eight to three information dump and more about a holistic entire life experience. For most of us, being a student is just, uh, it's kind of like being, uh, having a part-time hobby, but to be a student of Jesus is a, is a full-time job. I mean, it's the best job in the world, but it is a full-time job. Discipleship is not something that you can just squeeze into your life if you can find room for it in your schedule. Following Jesus is not like that. Being a student of Christ means that you must leave behind the entire world and everything in it. To be with Christ is to be with no ordinary teacher. Jesus is not just a good man. He's God. So if you're going to listen to him, if you're going to follow him, if you're going to learn from him, he demands more than some of your distracted attention for a few hours a day. He demands your everything. He calls you to sacrifice, to give up even the good things in this life. In the book of Mark, Jesus says that if we can't love him more than life itself, then we actually are not one of his disciples. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, which is a very strong image of death. Let him die and follow me. So friends, if you're not willing to give up your time, your talent, your treasure, your family, your friends, even your life, then you are not ready to follow Jesus and be his disciple. I want to be honest this morning, no, not pulling any punches, not trying to like dangle something in front of you to try to like get you in and then once you're here, hit you with the, the hidden cost, right? The cost of discipleship is high as high as it can possibly be. So this might be a good time for you to stop and examine your own life and ask yourself honestly if you are willing to count the cost of discipleship. Turn with me to Luke chapter 14. starting in verse 25. You'll notice the way that this text begins. It says that large crowds were gathering around Jesus. That tended to happen. Jesus was kind of like the, the, you know, the, the rock star of the ancient Near East, and big crowds came around him. And Jesus, man, he had a way of thinning out the crowd with his teaching because he knew that the crowds were fickle. Oh, I hear this Jesus guy. Oh, yeah, it's going to be awesome, like a movement. You know, It goes like this, and then it crashes. Jesus says, I don't want any part of that. So large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. 
Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. So Jesus says, listen, if you wouldn't set out to build a tower without counting the cost of building that tower before you do it, you shouldn't think that you can follow me without making sure you very much understand what I am going to demand of you as my student. Go down to verse 33. Jesus concludes this teaching, this thinning out of the crowd by saying, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. For following Jesus, there is no such thing as halfway sacrifice. If you are not willing to give it all up, then Jesus says there's no place for you in his band of disciples. Following Jesus, friends, is costly. But I promise you that the cost is worth it. No one has ever counted that cost and then regretted it. And if they did, they never really counted it in the first place. Turn with me a little bit further in the Gospel of Luke to chapter 18. We can start in verse 28. This is typical Peter. Jesus has taught them once again about the cost of discipleship, and Peter's like, oh, we got this, don't worry. Verse 28, and Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. Like, yeah, we got it, Jesus. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of kingdom of God, for the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come in eternal life. So friends, the cost is high, but the reward is greater. Now, because this is a gathering of Christians, I don't think it's out of line for me to assume that most of us here are, in fact, true disciples of Christ. And if that's true, if we've counted the cost, then we should have a deep and abiding desire to follow our master and to do all that he's commanded us to do including to fulfill the Great Commission by making disciples. We've become a disciple, now we take that and give it away. Just like we've received the love of God, we take that love and we go and give it out to our neighbor, right? We have received mercy from God, we go and we give that out to our neighbor. We have been made disciples, now we go and we make disciples. Now, when you think about making disciples, you probably already have like an idea of practically what that looks like in your head. You probably have... A model, you know, like I think a lot of people when they think about making disciples, they think that there's like one guy or one girl who's like really talented and they gather like a group of people around them, right? Okay, well, that can happen and it does happen. That's certainly what happened with Jesus, you know, being God and all, people tended to flock to him. That's not wrong, it's not bad, but it's also not the most normal way that discipleship happens in the life of the church. If discipling is really just helping other people to follow Jesus, then we should expect there to be all different kinds of discipleship relationships in the church. So let's just consider a few together now from Scripture. You have uh, note takers. Here we go. I'm about to start giving you some bullet points. You have parent-to-child discipleship. Parents-to-children. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. 
God's people in the book of Deuteronomy are getting ready to enter into the promised land. They're receiving the second giving of the law because God's people very much need to be reminded. So God's telling them once again, right before they go into the land. And part of God's vision for his people being faithful in the land is that parents train their children up in the ways of the Lord. All that they have received is passed on to their children. Let's just start in verse 1. Now, chapter 6, verse 1. This is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Go down to verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently, not casually, not if you have time, not if you can remember. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in the house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. It should be always on your lips. You should always be finding an opportunity to talk to your kids about the things of God. But then he continues. Verse 8. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Uh, Basically, your body. You should even use your body to demonstrate to your children how important these commands are from the Lord. Verse 9. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. When I was a brand new Christian, I got invited into some Christian's home and they would have like scriptures like on the bathroom mirror or like, you know, uh, macrame, crocheted on pillows. And, and I was just like, why, why is this stuff all over the place? Well, this is why. The vision here for parental discipleship to children is all of life. Moms, put scripture everywhere. Let your kids know that we're always looking to God's word. Dads, whenever you're having to comfort or discipline a child... Find some way to talk to them about God and his word to incorporate these eternal truths into your life. If, if all you have to say to your children is because I said so, that's not going to last very long. That's not going to hold up. I could preach a whole sermon on this, but I got to keep going. Next, we have husbands to wives. We're going to look at this scripture later in the sermon in Ephesians 5. But for now, just know that the Bible has a vision for husbands discipling their wives in godliness. We'll look more at that later. You also have a very strong emphasis on older women to younger women. Turn with me to Titus chapter 2, starting in verse Uh, mom, dad, also one of the easiest things you can do with discipleship, if your kids are with you in church and we're turning to a scripture, you just turn to the scripture. You let them see that you are active, you are participating, you care about God's word. They can see that. You don't have to tell them. They see you flipping the pages. Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 3. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women 
to love their husbands and children and to be self-controlled and pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Now, if you've never read this verse before, you may have some questions about what some of these things mean exactly, and we can talk about that at some point. But the point is, is that there's a category for discipleship in the church where older women look at younger women and go, I see you struggling. Come here, let me help you, right? Like, let me help you be a better wife. Let me help you be a better mom. Like, I've been there. I've done that. I've walked this path before you. So take my hand. Like, let's do this together. And young women in the church, I mean, what a blessing that is for you. If you've ever experienced it, you've ever had an older woman take you under her wing like that, it's just such a blessing. Praise God for that. You also have older men to younger men, right? So in Titus chapter 2, verse 6, Paul teaches Titus how to teach young men in the church to follow Jesus. He says this, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. And then he does the same thing that is kind of happening there with younger women. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. This is one generation of gospel workers pouring into another generation of gospel workers. Paul tells Timothy, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Yeah, so if you guys wonder why uh, I spend so much time and care so much about like, Jacob and Dom and Will and Luke and all the guys who were like in the elders training. Jonathan and Andrew, we just keep going. Our congregation, as small as it is, is full of young men who want to do this. They want to be poured into so that they can turn around and pour into other guys who can then turn around and pour into other guys, so on and so forth, until Jesus comes back. And then, of course, we have the corporate discipleship that takes place every single Sunday as we sing together, as we pray together, as we sit under the reading of scripture together, as the word is preached and we sit under that together, we are being built up into the fullness of Christ together. Now, I should add that this time of corporate discipleship is the most important form of discipleship that takes place in the life of our church. The most important. I was once a member of a church where uh, they had a very strong small group ministry, and the pastor of the church told all the people who were there for a members meeting, hey, life is crazy, we're in a big city, I know it's tough to carve out time in your schedule, but if you can only come to one meeting a week in our church, make sure you show up to small group. Friends, I could not more strongly disagree with that. Small groups are not commanded in Scripture. But the Lord's Day gathering is. This is what Christians have been doing for 2,000 years. On the day that Christ rose from the grave, we get together and we talk about it. And we pray about it. And we sing about it. And we rehearse the gospel. We help prepare each other to go to heaven. So if you can only make it to one gathering a week, be here on Sunday. This is our most important time together. This is where we are maximally built up. If you want to know how important it is, You should know that every single Sunday, barring some minor exceptions, 
me and the elders and a couple other people in the church get together at my house and we review our service, our Sunday service. And we don't do that because we view this as a time of performance and we want to get all the cues right. We do it because we think discipleship matters and we want this to be maximally edifying for you as a church. So we say, how, what are we doing well? What can we improve? So that this time of corporate discipleship can be as helpful uh, as God intends it to be. Okay, now having said that, we still want individual and small group discipleship relationships to be taking place in the church. Just because something is of supreme importance doesn't mean the other thing is relegated to a place of non-importance, right? We still want one-on-one and small group discipleship to be happening. We call this a culture of organic discipleship, where members are just always in small pockets, in their own relational spheres, helping each other to follow Jesus. This could happen in a million different ways. It could be two couples getting together to help each other think through a question that they have in their marriage. It could be uh, an empty nester talking to the parents of young children, being willing to listen as they vent, cry, gripe, complain, ask questions about, ah, terrible twos, what do I do? This could be Uh, This could happen in the realm of finances. You could be struggling and you don't really know what to do to get out of debt. Well, there's someone in the church that says, hey, I'll help you figure that out. Let's sit down and look at the numbers together. You could be having questions about... Actually, I'll skip that one. Ask me about it later. Uh, You could need some accountability for lust that you're struggling with. So you just grab two other guys in the church and you're like, hey, I'm really wrestling with this. I'm getting covenant eyes. I want you to be my accountability partner. Let's make sure we talk about this once a month. It could be helping a brother or sister think through a major career decision. I've never settled down in a city like this before. I love my job. Should I join the church? I don't know. This could happen in a very formal setting, you know, like, hey, come over. We'll sit down and open the scripture. It can just happen as you're talking to each other after church. You got five minutes. You're standing by the bookstall. Somebody grabs you, you just kind of hash it out right there. You pray, Lord, give me wisdom in this two-minute conversation. This discipleship could happen as you get together to memorize scripture. As you can tell, I'm trying to seed you with ideas. As you memorize scripture together, as you get a prayer group together, as you have a book study, as you figure out different ways to strategize for missions, as you have lunch break Bible studies, as you have weekly dinners, as you send out random text messages to members in the church letting them know that you're praying for them. All of this stuff is discipleship, and all of it should just be normal in a church where organic discipleship culture is present. We must be intentional about discipleship, brothers and sisters. This sort of thing does not happen by accident. We must understand that this is one of the main things that God has given us to build up his church. Listen to Ephesians chapter 4. Talking about members and their ministry to one another, Paul says this, speaking the truth to one another in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body, so a mature church, of him who is the head that is Christ. So if you're sitting there and you're thinking, Sean, man, I've been a member of so many churches where discipleship isn't taken seriously, where it's just so immature, like how do we, how can we have like a a church where people take these things seriously? You, you are how it happens. You're a member of this church. 
You have to be willing to do these things. You have to speak the truth to one another in love. You have to be willing to pray. You have to be willing to counsel. You have to be willing to grieve. You have to be willing to spend time. And if you do, I think you'll find that this sort of just becomes normal. Now, this, of course, should be led and modeled by the elders of the church. So if a member of the church says, man, Sean, great, great message, discipleship. I think I understand it, but like practically, like what does it look like? A member of the church should be able to point to an elder and say, that, that's what it looks like. You know, if you want to understand what it looks like in real life, there it is. Just go follow him for a month, pay attention, and you'll see. Just do what they're doing. Now, obviously, this is going to look different for every elder. So you take Grant and I, for example. Grant works 40 to 50 hours a week. He's got four kids, uh, and uh, he's a disc golf enthusiast, right? Being a pastor is not his main job. It's something that he does when he's done with his main, main job, being a husband and father, and then also his career. He makes time for being an elder, and he does a great job of that. Compare that with me. This is my full-time job. I have much more time, talent, and treasure at my disposal to be able to make disciples. But what should be consistent amongst all different kinds of elders is the effort to lead the church through discipleship, right? If you're a member of the church and you want to know what discipleship is, what it's like, and you look at an elder and their example, you should be both encouraged and convicted, right? Encouraged and convicted. You should go, ah, that's so amazing. I want to be like that. And then you should go, ugh, I don't know if I can do that, right? <laughs> I'll give you an example. Uh, our brother Shane Hopkins Uh, Will Stevenson told me that he went and spent some time with Shane and he was just talking to Shane about being a dad, you know, and then after their meeting, uh, Will came back and he was like, oh man, it was great. I love the brother. I'm super encouraged by him. And he was like, man, when I have kids, I'm going to go spend a lot of time with Shane because I feel like, man, he's really got it down. Now Shane would be like, I don't know what you're talking about, right? (laughs) So Will was encouraged. And then he was also like convicted. He was like, man, I just need to, like, I don't, I need to do a better job in every area of my life, right? Like, just seeing Shane's example made him realize he needs to do better. I think that's a good feeling. I think that's pretty normal. Now, a little side note here. I'm talking a lot about discipleship and how important it is and how elders should lead the way. You should not take away from that that I can be your personal discipler, right? We have 61 members. We're probably going to have a few more at our next members meeting. Guys, I can't disciple 61 people, right? Uh, No one can disciple meaningfully 61 people. That's part of the reason why Jesus just just kept thinning out the crowd, right? He was like, all right, I can handle 12. And then of the 12, he was like, okay, I can really handle three. He was the God man. So if you're like, Sean, why aren't you discipling me? Brother, sister, oof, I would love to. But I can't disciple everyone. And you know what? I don't think the Lord expects that of me or any elder My main job is to equip other leaders in the church so that they can lead and help and then to give you the tools to disciple one another. That doesn't mean that I'm not in discipleship relationships in the church. I am, and I very much enjoy them. Uh, But if you come to me and say, Sean, can you disciple me? There is a high possibility. I might just say, ooh, you know what? This brother needs someone to disciple. Why don't you two get together and, and that'll be great. Okay, so now that we have a working theory of what discipleship is, Let's get even more practical. What are the nuts and bolts of discipleship? I've got three points for you here. Teach, live, and invite. 
Teach, live, and invite. And no, that whole thing was not the intro. Don't worry. Some of you are like, are we just now starting point number one? I know that y'all would sit here all day with me. We could just talk about this all day. Amen. Amen. Number one, teach. So if, if being a disciple simply means being a student, then obviously there has to be someone to teach, right? You can't have a teacher. You can't have a student without a teacher. Of course, our main teacher is Christ, but God in his kindness has also given us the ability to teach one another. So in order to make disciples, we have to be willing to teach. Now, it's right here at this point that a lot of people get intimidated. They're like, oh, I could never do this. I could never teach anyone, you know. Who am I to teach anyone how to follow Jesus? They'll say things like, I don't know my Bible well enough. I'm still trying to figure out how to be a faithful Christian myself. What if I fail? I've never been discipled. I don't know how to do it. What if I'm not smart enough or godly enough or holy enough or... And as I'm having these conversations with Christians, sometimes I'm like, okay, okay, calm down, you know, breathe, you know, you know, grab the brown paper bag, like it's going to be okay. As I was preparing this part of the sermon and, and thinking about the way Christians are intimidated by this, I thought about me and Amber as we were thinking through homeschool and the way Amber was very much intimidated by the idea of teaching our kids, you know. I haven't gone to college. I don't have a program. I don't know how to, uh, I'm not going to be patient enough. That one's probably true. And so with Amber, I'm like, whoa, calm down, you know. Let's think through this together. You know more than them, right? <laughs> At least up to this point, like, you know more than our 10-year-old. And uh, you love them, right? And you're really dedicated to them and you care about their education, right? And you'll lean on others for help when you need it. And you know that I'm going to be here to help you. And you have Google. And... I know that as a mom, you're not going to try to train them up in your own strength, but in the grace of God. Well, if that's true, I don't really know how you can mess this up. So if, brother or sister, if you're here and you're nervous about the idea of trying to teach someone what it's like to follow Jesus, I just want to say, yeah, you know, you're probably right. You're not, you're not enough. You're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You're not holy enough. You don't know the Bible well enough. You just don't. But it's not just you. The Holy Spirit who lives in you is helping you to do these things. You don't know enough, but he knows everything. He's omniscient. You're not strong enough, but he's omnipotent. You're not holy enough, but he is making you more holy with each passing day. Friends, you have to remember that the Holy Spirit does not call the equipped. He equips the called. That's why Paul tells Timothy, he says, study and show yourself as one approved. This is after Timothy has already been commissioned to the ministry. Timothy's already out there. He's working. He's preaching. He's teaching. He's reading. He's discipling. And Paul says, study to show yourself as one approved. What does he mean? He means God has already put you here. Now you just got to make sure that you do the work to stay there and be fruitful and faithful by God's grace and with his help. Paul says to Timothy, whether you feel fully prepared or not, it's time to get work, get to work. So, you know, study on the job. Do some on-the-job training, but the job has already begun. So if you love someone, 
And the Lord has given you the opportunity to lead them. And if you're just a smidge ahead of them on the journey, don't be afraid to disciple. Run through that same checklist that I ran through with Amber, right? The Holy Spirit lives in me. Check. I'm a member of a healthy local church that's going to help me in my discipleship efforts where I feel like I can't do it myself. Check. I care about seeing Christ's church build up into maturity. Check. I won't try to do this in my own strength, but by the grace of God and with his help. Check. Listen to what Paul says about Christian discipleship in Romans 15. He says, I am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves, not me the apostle, you yourselves, ordinary Christians, are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. Friends, Paul felt that way about the church in Rome. And I want you to know that I feel that way about you, the members of Sixth Avenue Community Church. You are full of everything that you need because God has given it to you. And you are able to instruct one another. Now, let's assume that we can get over our fears about our weaknesses and our inability to disciple. And we say, okay, Sean, I'm bought in on the vision. I'm ready to teach. What do I teach him? Well, it's right there in the language of the Great Commission. Jesus says, teach them to obey all that I have commanded. That's it. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy. Just teach them everything that Jesus ever said and taught. Now, the engineers in the room might be panicked by this command. Because in their mind, they hear that and they think, oh, I need to formulate a plan. I need to develop a curriculum. I need to systematically think through how I can communicate to another human being the full contents of the teaching of Christ in the Bible. Yeah, I'd be scared too if I thought that that was true, <laughs> okay? I don't really think that that's what Jesus means here. I, there's a couple of different arguments I can make. One is the way you can understand the verb to go in the Great Commission, but I'm not going to do that this morning. I just want to tell you, I think you should go back to Deuteronomy 6 and understand what's happening there. That kind of parent-to-child discipleship, it's not like systematic, day one, I'm going to teach you about this attribute of God, and day two, I'm going to teach you about this attribute of God, and then, and then three years later, you know, in your teenage years, we're going to do anthropology, and no. It's just as you live your life, stuff comes up. You have this issue. Okay, let's go to God's word and see what he says. Well, now we have that issue. Okay, well, let's just go to God's word and see what he says. It's just organic. It's as you go about living your life, you're just always there, ready and willing to teach people what Jesus has to say about this particular topic. I don't think that there is a syllabus for discipleship. If there is, it exists in the mind of God. And it's only displayed to us throughout the course of providence. Okay, that's teaching. Point number two, live. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. Right? Paul says, don't just listen to me. Imitate me. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. There is a danger in, in our world, the world that takes doctrine seriously, a church that isn't flippant about the things of Christ, and our danger is to conflate knowing truth with doing truth. Knowing truth with believing truth. Right? 
And that can infiltrate our understanding of discipleship, our practice of helping other people to follow Jesus. What that can all too often look like is what I call a drag and drop discipleship. You guys know how on the computer, like you can take like a folder, you can click it and drag it from like your desktop to your cloud, right? The information has just been transferred. And sometimes that's how we can think about discipleship in the reformed world, right? Like, okay, I know a bunch of stuff about God and now I'm going to transfer that information to you and now you'll know a bunch of stuff about God and we've done discipleship. That's not at all the vision of discipleship that Jesus has in mind. Discipleship is not, it is information transfer, but it's not just information transfer. Discipleship is teaching the gospel and then demonstrating the gospel that we teach with our lives. It's saying, do it like this and then showing them how to do it. You think about sports, which I know a ton about. In any sport, any of the, any of the sports, you got football, you got basketball, you got baseball, you got tennis, no, I'm not going to do it, you got volleyball. You think about any sport, and the best coaches are not the guys who merely understand the theory of the game. The best coaches are the ones who have the experience to validate and demonstrate their head knowledge, right? These are the coaches that can not only explain the technique, but when like a player's not doing it right, he can get in there and say, hand me the ball. No, see, it's, you actually got to do it like this. I did that kind of good. I used to be able to throw a football over the mountain. Now, this idea of not only teaching, but living out is, it's all over the New Testament. We just read two verses from 1 Corinthians, but there's more. Consider the language that Paul uses when he's talking about discipling the next generation in Titus 2. The first two words, listen, show yourself, right? Don't just teach, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, right? It's not just what you teach. It's how you teach it and how you live out what you're teaching that matters. Or consider the language that Paul uses when talking to husbands about their discipleship of their wives. Husbands, love your wives. Notice he doesn't say, teach them true things about me. And then if you want to know what it looks like to love your wife, he goes on, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body. Verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. Husbands, if you are teaching your wives things, but you are not giving yourself up for them, if you're not nourishing them, if you're not cherishing them, you are not discipling them. Consider Ephesians 6, the way that parents are taught to disciple their children by the Apostle Paul. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So according to Paul, there's a way that you can teach your kids right things and then treat them the wrong way and so undermine the, the teaching that you've done, right? Consider Matthew 23, verses 3 through 4. Jesus talking to people about the Pharisees who talk a big game, but then don't live it out. He says, you must careful to, be do, to do everything that they tell you, 
But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. Parents, let, let this be a very special warning to you. Mom, dad, your children see your life, and they have an uncanny ability to detect hypocrisy in you. I get it. We're all a little hypocritical. The other day, I was sitting there eating some chips and cheese dip, and I got done. Man, it was so good. Have y'all had that Chipotle cheese dip? I was so good. At the end, I kind of took my finger. I'm ashamed to admit it, and my hands weren't even washed. I took my finger, and I ah. And Patience looked at me, and she said, Dad, you tell me all the time not to do that with the ranch dressing. And you know me. I was, I was like, cheese dip's different than ranch. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I had nothing, right? But like, she saw that hypocrisy, boom, immediately, and she called me on it, and she was right to do so. So parents, now obviously that's kind of silly, right? There's always going to be little stuff like that, but you know what I'm talking about here, right? When I talk about hypocrisy in the way that you're discipling your children. When you act one way at church in another way at home, that will preach to your children. When you tell your kids not to use foul language, but then they hear you on the phone or in an argument with your spouse, speaking the way the world speaks, well, they hear that. When you teach them the importance of God, but then never make time for him in your life together, you never pray together, you never read scriptures together, you never, maybe you make time for the church, but even then only sometimes, guys, that, that communicates to your children in a way that is much louder than anything that you could ever say to them. Now, point number three, Invite. In order for us to not only teach but live out the gospel for the sake of discipleship, we actually have to make room for one another in our lives. I don't really have anything special to say here. I'm just going to kind of hit you with a bare bones exhortation. You have to open up your life to the believers in your church. You have to. If you want to have real, meaningful, beyond superficial discipleship relationships, you have to make your, yourself available to other people. You don't have to throw wide open the front door of your house every single day, but there should be a side entrance that's basically accessible to your brothers and sisters in Christ. So for the Christian, your home cannot be your castle. It, it, it just can't be. That's such a carnal way to think about your life. Your home should also be a hospital, a counseling center, a daycare, a soup kitchen, Anything else that you may need it to be in order to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ. Your weekends cannot be for you a retreat away from the world where you safeguard yourself from any interferences. Your weekends should at least have windows of availability to serve those who are part of your eternal family. Your family meals cannot just be for your nuclear family. They also have to be for the family of Christ. Now, I don't want to be unsympathetic here. I realize that some of you may be listening to this and you may be thinking, Sean, you have no idea how, how thin my life is stretched out at the moment. Like, you just have no idea. Like, I'm hearing you and I think I believe you, but I just, I, you don't know how busy I am. I don't know that I can do this. Well, I got three thoughts on that, a little sub-point here. The first thought on that is, um, you're not that busy. 
You're just not. I know some very, very, very busy people. And I don't know that I can say that any one of them is too busy to make time for their brothers and sisters in Christ. As a matter of fact, the busiest person that I know in this church, I've seen intentionally carve out time to serve their brothers and sisters in Christ. Right? And if you are too busy for the Great Commission, well then friend, you may need to re-examine your schedule and your life and ask yourself if you have prioritized the things that matter most, the things of eternity. The second thing I want to say about that is just be careful of believing the lie that you don't have time or energy, when in reality, you just, you're not making the time. You're just not giving the energy. We always make time for the things that we care about. Maybe the issue is not your schedule, but your heart. Number three, if you approach intentional discipleship relationships with the right mentality, you really don't have to add a whole lot to your schedule. Wisdom tells you that you can really just uh, utilize your schedule well by inviting people into what you already have in place. The best discipleship opportunities are opportunistic. So if you want to do a better job of like meeting with people for the sake of discipleship, you don't have to add uh, another meal to your calendar, you know, although some of you do eat second breakfast. You don't have to do that. You can just do a better job of utilizing the meals that you already have. You're going to have three meals a day every day, maybe, maybe not all of us, but basically three meals a day every day. So maybe you can grab breakfast with a brother or sister before work. That's how my relationship with Grant began. When he was serving in this church and I was somewhere else, we had breakfast at Cracker Barrel for discipleship every week for a year. Maybe if you work at Boeing, like four or five people from our church do, you can get together and read and pray uh, at lunchtime. If you have five family dinners a week, you know, you, you can't do seven because like Wednesday's church night and then you got soccer practice. If you got five family meals a week, just use one of those meals to invite someone from the church over for discipleship. Just one. That's one meal a week. If my math is right, that's four weeks a month. And if my math is right even further, that's 52 meals a year. That's a lot of discipleship time. What if you only get 40 out of those 52? That's still a lot of discipleship time, and you didn't have to add anything to your schedule in order to make that happen. If you have to go to the airport, ask someone from the church to give you a ride, and then talk about spiritual stuff while you're on the way. If you have to go to a soccer game with your kids, and you know that there's another church member, go talk with them. Uh, Tim did that with me the other day. I was standing there on the fence being a loser, just reading a book. He came up and chit-chatted with me. It was great. If you work out, ask another fitness-minded member of the church if they want to get it in with you. And then when you got 10 minutes after the workout for your cool down, you know, how's your wife? How's your walk with the Lord? How can I be praying for you? I do this with Michael like three times a week, you know? He does it with me. Friends, opening up our lives may not be easy, but that doesn't mean it has to be complicated. Now, uh, before closing well before closing. I have a few more random thoughts, you know, some like Blaise Pascal pensies that I just couldn't fit into the sermon, but I want to say them anyways, so this is how we're going to end, okay? Y'all with me? Oh, that didn't sound very good. I said, are you with me? Yes. Ah, that's better. Number one, don't let other Christians go undiscipled just because you weren't discipled. 
right? Like, don't let that faithlessness in the church compound with you. Be willing to be the one to break that cycle. Sean, nobody ever did Titus to discipleship with me. Man, I get it, and that stinks, and I hate it, and I wish they would have. But you can be the one to be a Titus II woman to someone else. I think about it like with my children, right? Like, no one, I didn't have a dad growing up. I could have said, oh, well, nobody showed me how to be a dad, so I'm going to use that as an excuse to be a bad father. No, if I'm a bad father, it's going to be by accident. I said, I never had anyone to show me what it's like, so I'm going to let that spur me on to be the best dad that I can possibly be so that my kids never know that experience. Let the same thing be true of you in your discipleship. Number two, don't trust in your ability to disciple others in your flesh. I already spoke on this earlier, but I want to say it again. Far too many Christians pursue discipleship in the church as if it is the same thing as mentoring in business. It is not. What we are doing is a spiritual endeavor. All discipleship is 100% dependent on the Spirit's help. And that's good news because you should know that the Spirit is very much in the business of covering the gap. We fall short, but He uses crooked sticks to draw straight lines in the lives of His people. Guys, I could tell you story after story after story of discipleship relationships that I've led where I've done a bad job and I've messed up. And you know what? They are doing great, right? The Lord covered the gap. He used it anyways. This reminds me of uh, older, wiser, seasoned parents talking about younger, anxious, neurotic parents. You know, they, these older parents, they just they go, shh, 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 calm down. It's going to be okay. And they try to tell the younger parents like, hey, Kids are more durable than you, than you know, right? Like, uh, they, they can make it through a lot of mess-ups, so don't feel like you have to get everything right. I just want to say the same thing to you in your discipleship relationships. The Lord has instilled a sense of resiliency in these by His grace. Now, what I'm not saying here is that you can't or won't hurt someone if you do a bad job. You can. Abuse and things like abuse can take place in discipleship relationships, and that's bad. I'm talking about if you're trying to do a good job and you're not sinning, don't be afraid. The Lord will bless your work. I think about the Apostle Paul and his ministry. At one point, he was totally overwhelmed. And he said, who is sufficient for these things? Right? And the answer is, no one. And so, later in his ministry, Paul writes these words. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves, but our sufficiency comes from God. So when I say don't disciple in the flesh... That's what I mean. Trust that you are not sufficient, but God is. Number three, keep it simple. Just point people to Jesus. The sweet freedom of biblical discipleship is that it doesn't have to be fancy. You don't have to have some 12, 19, 38-step program over the course of two years where you have this new teaching method. Discipling is really as simple as somebody says, like, hey, I have this issue at work. Can you help me with it? And you go... You pray. Maybe you have a word for them, but if you don't, you just go, ah, let's, let's look at the Bible together. Right? That, that, that's as complicated as it needs to be. I'm not saying that answers are always easy or easy to implement. I'm just saying that usually people mess up discipleship when they make it more complicated than it needs to be. Uh, on that note, let me just say, you might be surprised to know how often I say I don't know in, in my discipleship relationships. You should feel free to say, I don't know as well. Discipling is not something that you can do as long as you have all the answers. 
Friends, most of us know that we don't have all the right answers. If that was a precondition for discipling other people, then no one would ever disciple anyone because Jesus is the only one who has all the right answers. A little special warning here for the young guys in the congregation. All my young whippersnappers, heads and hearts full of uh, good Christian music and systematic theology, just brains just swelling as we speak, just your information. You just know so much about the Bible. It's incredible. And you know so much about life. You just know all the right answers, right? It's amazing. Uh, you guys should be quick to say, I don't know, right? Like, there's something like uh, Luke, Will in particular. Where's Will? Luke, Will. Like, because <laughs> you guys, like, you're, you're, you're in ministry. You're going deeper into ministry, and you're young. And hey, that's great. Paul tells Timothy, don't let anyone despise you for your youth, right? So, like, same thing for you guys. But there is a special pressure on young guys to feel like I got to prove that I deserve to be here. So when someone asks a question in a Bible study or after a sermon or in an email, you feel like, I got to give them an answer, even if you have no answer to give. Resist that urge. Kill that nerve. Be quick to say, I don't know. That example in maturity will speak volumes, and it will earn more respect in the congregation than fumbling and stumbling your way through an answer that you just don't have. Number four, you might think that it's prideful, to think that you should help someone follow Jesus, but it's not. It's not prideful to be obedient to the commands of Scripture. It's not prideful to see someone that you can serve and then actually give yourself in serving them. It's not prideful to think that you have something to offer someone else that they themselves do not have. That's just called life. That's reality. So don't do it. Number five. You might be too proud to say that you're being discipled by someone. I've been in a relationship. I'm pouring into this guy. I'm Bible study, praying with him, doing life on life with him. Somebody one time says, hey, man, have you been discipled? And he goes, no, not really. What are we doing here? Come to find out, it's just a pride thing. He doesn't want to say that somebody else is having to teach him. Don't do that. We all need to be taught. Be quick to give honor to someone who has given their life to help you follow Jesus better. Number seven, ask someone to disciple you. If you're sitting there right now and you're thinking, talking a big game, Sean, but I've been around Sixth Avenue for a while now. Nobody's like, you know, like the claws in the machine. Like nobody's come over and like picked me up and dropped me off in the discipleship bin. Well, have you asked? It's kind of like community, you know, like nobody's invited me to their house. Well, have, you, have you reached out to someone? Have you, have you called? Have you prayed? You know, if you're like, man, I want to be discipled, there is someone to disciple you. I promise you in this church, there are men and women who are willing to disciple you. Just ask. If you don't know who to ask, come up to me or Grant. We'll get you plugged in. We'll get you connected with someone who's willing to pour into you for the sake of Christ. Number seven, discipleship isn't forever. Some of us are afraid of discipleship relationships because we think it's like this, it's almost like we're getting married, you know, I'm getting locked into this 15-year commitment, a 30-year loan kind of a thing. That's scary. Ooh, millennials commitment. Ooh. It doesn't have to be like that. Sometimes discipleship can be a month-long thing, a six-month-long thing. Sometimes it can be for life. Fantastic. I remember going back to me and Grant at, at uh, Cracker Barrel. Right now, Grant and my relationship is mutual discipleship. I pour into him, he pours into me, we're constantly building each other up. Back then, not so much. Grant didn't really know what he was doing. I knew a little bit more than him, so I was like, let me help you. 
the nature of your discipleship relationship may change. So don't be afraid of entering into a relationship like you have to give your whole life to this one person. You're not getting married. Number eight, disciple in love. You remember in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul is talking about spiritual gifts and he, he tries to relativize them. He says, listen, none of that matters if you don't have love. Friends, I want to tell you, none of your discipleship efforts will matter to Christ if you're doing it for the wrong reasons. If you're doing it to impress other people, look how many people I've discipled. If you're doing it just so you can add more people to your theological bench. If you're doing it because you just find some sense of satisfaction in being over someone in the Lord. But he will be honored by it if you look at someone who needs you and who needs more of Christ and you love them and you go to them in love and pursue them in that way. And then finally, number nine, disciple towards the right kind of transformation. Remember, the goal of discipleship is not to make imitations of us. You're supposed to make people more like Christ. You notice in that verse we read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Right? So in these discipleship relationships, I'm more than happy to have people follow me and imitate me insofar as I'm following and imitating Christ. Now, because we're human beings and we live in this body and in this world, sometimes that means that people will be more like, they'll be like you in more ways than just the spiritual way. Like, the guy who discipled me, uh, I know a whole bunch of other guys who were discipled by him and they kind of talk like him, kind of have some of his mannerisms. That's just normal and you know what, that's kind of cool, that happens, especially for younger guys. And then they grow up and they find their own voice and their own posture and they take the good stuff and they kind of shed some of that personality stuff. But just remember, your purpose is not to make people more like you, it's to make people more like Jesus. Finally, if you're here and you're visiting with us this morning and you're not a Christian or you're not really sure you understand that you're a Christian or you've never heard any of this stuff before and you're wondering, why is this guy up there ranting and raving for an hour and who knows how long about this? Why are they taking this so seriously? Why does this matter to them so much? Friends, let me tell you why. It's because Jesus is our God and King. He's our Lord, our Master, our friend, our servant, our Father. He's our everything. And He gave Himself up for us on the cross. He paid the price for our sins that we could not pay. He loved us when we were dead in our sins, when we were utterly unlovable. He gave Himself for us so that we might have all the riches of God in Him. When he calls us to him, we don't go to him begrudgingly. We run to him with joy, hearts overflowing with gladness, full of thanksgiving. We count it a privilege to count the cost to follow Christ. And there's nothing in the world that we want more than to give that to other people. Jesus, however, is not like that new song that we love that we want all of our friends to like. He's not like that new restaurant that we're excited about for a little while, but then we'll forget about in a month. No, he is the all-consuming passion of our lives. Everything that we have, everything that we are, everything that we do belongs to Christ. This is why we care about discipleship. If you have questions about what that means, if you are interested in being a disciple of Jesus Christ, come and talk to me or anyone else after the service We'd be happy to help you think about that. Let's pray.
Father God, you are our everything. You've given us yourself. And we have received all that you have for us in joy. We pray that you will love us, God. Continue to bless us in this church by building us up through the, through the work of discipleship. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Please stand. Let's sing together. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Brothers and sisters, as you go back out into the world, you do so as disciples of Christ, as a witness to his power and his glory. May we be faithful as his witnesses. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed.